That's a good guess. No, it was T-Bone. It was T-Bone. Yeah, you can call me T-Bone. And you're like, some of you are like, I'm not going to call a grown man T-Bone. That's fine. You can call me Reverend if you don't want to call me T-Bone. Hey, uh, do we have any, let's see, sixth graders in the house? No, no, let's hear it. Give me a little whoop, whoop. Okay, great. Uh, do we have any seventh graders in the house? Where are you at? Okay. Do we have any eighth graders in the house? Okay. Did I miss any grades? I don't know, like middle school? Yeah. Any fifth? Any fifth? No? Any, any, any seniors? If you're here, you should not be here. Well, hey, you guys, uh, we're, I'm glad. My name's Travis. I get to uh, open the scriptures with you, and, and we're going to talk through uh, this, this week just the, the theme of under the sun. Um, I have been a pizza delivery driver before. I know that really impresses you. I've been a Christmas tree cutter as well um, down the hill from here. I was a youth pastor for about 16 years working with youth ministry. Then I was a, a college campus pastor at a Christian university. And then I finally got demoted from youth ministry. And now I'm a lead pastor at a church in a city called Redding, California. Do you guys know where Redding is? It's not Redlands, not Redlands nearby, but Redding. Anybody been up there to Mount Shasta, Lassen? Okay, so I'm a pastor up there, and I'm excited to be here, but I was a youth pastor in Riverside, which is close by. Um, and so uh, we're going to be going through just the Old Testament um, book of Ecclesiastes. We're not going to hit all of it, but we're going to use Ecclesiastes as just the, the foundation of our study. And so if you have a Bible with you, I know some of you just rolled in, um, but if you have your own Bible, you're welcome to open it to Ecclesiastes. I'll also have the scriptures up on the screen, but you can open up, it's an Old Testament book. Ecclesiastes is like in the middle of the Bible. It's after Psalms, Proverbs. Don't go too far because if you hit the book of Song of Solomon, don't read it. You're not allowed to read that book until you're 30 years old. That's what my Bible professor told me. So don't read it. But get to Ecclesiastes. You can put a bookmark in there like a sock or a snowball or something to hold your page because we'll be there quite a bit. You don't use snowballs for bookmarks? They're great. Yeah, they, they dissolve. They're fantastic. But here's a big question for you that I would like you to contemplate. Why are you here? Why are you here? And I don't mean why are you at Hume Lake? You're like, mom and dad signed me up. Or there's someone cute that was going and I decided to go. I'm not asking why are you at Hume, but have you ever thought, like, why do you even exist? Why, why, are, why do you even breathe and live, and why do you live in the city that you live in, in the time of history that you live in? Those are some questions that, that are very deep and important, though, for us to consider. And what is the reason and the purpose of your life? Why, why did God create you? Why do you live and exist? And does your life even have any meaning or do you believe, like many of your peers, like many of my peers, do you believe that your life has no purpose at all and it's just random and that you are here by accident and that you are merely just a bag of bones that is on this rock that spins around the sun? And some people believe that. But the Bible tells a different story about each one of you 
that God made you on purpose. And he made you for purpose. And that God actually enjoys you and he has good work in mind for you. But where will we find this meaning in life? And people search all different places to find meaning and purpose in life and significance. As early as fifth grade, I can remember in fifth grade, I started thinking about my life and I wanted my life to matter. I wanted to be important. I wanted to be significant. And so I had some attempts from when I was about your age that would bring me significance and meaning. And the first thing that I poured my life into in fifth grade was heavy metal music. And I thought, you know, a real, yeah, that's right. That I would be, if I could be a guitarist in a heavy metal band, that that would give me meaning and significance. That I could be on a stage like this and people would be shouting my name and buying my albums. So I saved up 400 bucks. You guys, fifth grade, I'm way older than you. That's like a million dollars today. 400 bucks, and I bought this star, shiny, candy apple red star guitar with a little whammy bar on it, because that's what I, it was just total, total hairband in the 80s. And then I gathered some friends, and they bought instruments as well, and we came up, because you got to have, here's what you need. You need instruments, and you need a cool band name. So we chose, this is my band name, Metal Cross. Metal cross. Because of my two loves, I did love Jesus in fifth grade, and I loved heavy metal. Now, we never went anywhere because we never learned how to play those instruments. Apparently, you have to do that. But I had a band name, and I thought, man, if I could be on stage and and play some rock music, I'd be important. People would know my name. But after after Metal Cross broke up, it was really sad, I poured my life in junior high and high school into sports, and I love sports. I still play sports. Back then it was baseball. And I really thought that that God's purpose in my life is that I would make it to the major leagues as a shortstop. And so I put all my time, my energy, my money into baseball. Now, baseball is not wrong, but I put my whole significance in it. In fact, I figured that, that that's how I would change the world and have meaning and significance. And I'll tell you, I... And I usually don't tell people this, it sounds like I'm bragging, but I I really had every indication that I would make it to the major leagues. And I'd played for different coaches, and I'd even played for a, a scout for the Cincinnati Reds and tried out for him as well. But these coaches that saw me play, and, and this scout as well, they all saw that I was lacking one thing that would actually keep me from the major leagues. There was one thing I was missing that every major league baseball player had. And that was talent. I, didn't, I, just, I just wasn't good. But if I would have had that one thing, one thing kept me out of the major leagues, you guys. I would not have been here if I would have been any good at baseball. But that's what I, I put my life in. I don't know about you guys where you think about what would make you important or significant. And sometimes we put a lot of time and energy towards that, toward our looks, uh, toward maybe uh, likes on social media, or to get attention, even our grades. And I think it's great to do, to do well in school, but sometimes we put so much importance that it's our, our report card. It's that A, you know, uh, on that, that exam or that test that gives us meaning and significance, and it doesn't. Listen, I would not find meaning and purpose by pursuing fame and recognition and money. 
Those are things that we think are going to give us meaning. And we're going to find that Solomon had all of that. And yet it, it wasn't satisfying. Because things like fame and, and, and talent and, and recognition and attention and applause and money, those things can never bring true joy and satisfaction and meaning. And so I'm going to ask you to even talk, maybe even in your cabins tonight as you think through, what are some of the things that you are pursuing that you think are going to bring ultimate joy and meaning and purpose in life? They promise satisfaction, many of these worldly things, but they can't deliver, and they don't deliver. And so this book of Ecclesiastes centers on a person's search for true meaning and significance. And, and, and the lessons are from a man named Solomon. Uh, Solomon was a man who had everything and a man who tried everything. He was the third king of Israel. His father was David. You might have heard of King David. Solomon was king after him. He, he existed and lived around 1000 BC. Um, so that's about, what, 3,000 years ago. And he had it all. Solomon was the wisest man ever. For he had asked God for wisdom. He, he had asked God for what's called a, a listening heart. A heart that had ears. And I know that sounds weird. But literally, he was asking God that, that his heart would listen to God's truth and that he would know the difference between right and wrong. Now, Solomon didn't always apply that wisdom in his life, as we'll see. But he had it all and he tried it all and it didn't satisfy. It didn't bring him meaning. Everything he tried just left him feeling empty. And so I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 through 11, then we'll read the remaining verses in the chapter. But I just want you to kind of get an overview of the, the, the feel, uh, uh, the attitude, the posture of Solomon as he writes these words. Ecclesiastes 1, and before I read God's word, would you just pray with me? Just bow for just a moment. Father, would you teach us from your word, not just tonight, but this whole weekend and actually our whole lives? And Father, I pray for every young man, every young woman that is here at camp this weekend. God, I pray that you would have your way in us. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach each one of us something new. Or Father, you would remind each one of us of something true. Something true that we've forgotten something true that we've neglected. And I pray over these young friends of mine, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, my friend, hear, friends, hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and I'll read verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's Solomon. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word vanity, uh, it really just kind of means, another Bible version will say meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That word vanity kind of comes from the image of, of, of mist or vapor or smoke. And you think you're going to grab onto smoke, but it just slips through your hand. It's empty. It's useless. There's no significance to it. And he says that everything is vanity. This guy's already starting out on a downer note, isn't he? You're like, this guy's sad. Well, verse 3, he says, What does man gain by all the toil, all the work at which he toils under the sun? What do you really gain from all your work? 
Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He's saying, you're all going to die, dude. <laughs> you know, we, we, and, and then the next generation, they're going to die. And the next generation and our generation. He's like, what's it all for? Verse 5, he says, the sun rises and the sun goes down and then it hastens or it quickly returns back to its place where it rises again and sets and rises and sets and over and over. And what's the meaning? What's the purpose? Verse 6, the wind blows to the south and then goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind on its circuits, the wind returns. And you can't ever catch the wind. You can't ever figure it out. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea. Did you know that? All streams, they run to the sea, but the sea is not full. It never fills up. To the place where the streams flow, well, there they flow again. Verse 8, all these things are full of weariness. He says, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. Think about that. Do you think that your eyes can see everything that the world has to see? No way. You can never get your own fill. I even scrolling. Do you think you can scroll and see every post that has ever been made? No way. He says the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Right? You, you can never listen to every song that's ever been sung. You can never get your fill. There's always more to listen to. Verse 9, he says, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will, have, will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, ooh, see, this is something new. This is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no, verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things. Or really, that can be translated people. He says there's no remembrance of former people, people that have died. We don't remember them. Nor will there be any remembrance of later things or later people yet to be among those who come after. Man, can we just stop right there? Kind of depressing, isn't it? Solomon's a bit of a downer. He sounds like Eeyore. You guys know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Everything's boring, no meaning in life, nothing's good. And I remember when I was about your age and I first got a glimpse of this book of Ecclesiastes, I said, depressing. But there's actually hope in this book. He's actually being very true and real. He, he's, he's not just singing happy, happy, joy, joy. He's thinking through and going, what is the meaning of everything? And I think that's a very good question to ask. Because I think that helps us search out the answers and find true meaning and true significance. Because we can't always explain things that happen in this world. Have you ever had thoughts or feelings like this? And if you haven't, this is part of the time in your life where you start thinking about those deeper questions about your life and what you're here for, where you're going to find joy and happiness. Maybe some of those things that you thought would bring so much joy, they didn't last. Things that, that, that and they leave you feeling empty and hopeless. I remember thinking, remember those toys that you would want so bad for Christmas? And, and, and I remember having, the, I wanted a remote control car. Does this thing still exist? Am I the only one? Mine used to have wires attached to them. They were kind of lame. Um, 
I remember I wanted this, this remote control car. And I just thought, oh, it's going to be the best thing ever. And if I get this Christmas gift, it's just going to be so much happiness and so much joy. It's going to be the best thing in the world. And I remember I, I saw this box under the tree. And, and, and I knew, I, th- I think that's the remote control car. And I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. Christmas Day comes. And you open that toy. And I don't know what that was for you that you just thought was going to be the best thing ever. And I play with it. And I open it up. But... But after half an hour or maybe an hour, I'm bored with it. I'm bored with that one thing that I put so much hope and so much anticipation into. And, and it's, it's empty. It doesn't fully satisfy. But before you give up hope and, and, and lose it all, hear this. There is meaning in life, and and Solomon is going to point us to meaning. There is purpose, there is joy, and there is a reason why you exist. And yet what we're going to find, though, is that we often look for joy and meaning in the wrong places. So the wisdom of Scripture, and Solomon is trying to, to, to teach all of us, just like uh, Adam, you know, the, the, the guy that was being interviewed. It's kind of near the end of his life, and he's trying to give us wisdom that we might learn from his searching. And Solomon wants us to do the same as well. The problem is that we put our hope in the wrong things, like Solomon does. So let me just conclude chapter 1. Um, verses 12 through, through 18, he continues. In verse 12, he says, I, the preacher, I've been king over Israel and Jerusalem. That's like the highest thing you could do. Wouldn't you think if you were the king that your like, life would be amazing and it would be awesome? Well, apparently not. Verse 13, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Meaning trying to learn and find out and understand everything on this earth. Verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity. There's that word again. What does vanity mean? Someone give me a yeah, shout it out. What do you think? Yeah, meaninglessness. All is vanity. You know, yeah. It's like smoke. It's like, it's like vapor. It's not there. People who are vain sometimes put a lot of um, emphasis on outward appearance rather than the substance of their character. But yet we look for meaning. But he says that, that all this, this is, is everything in the world and done in the sun is vanity. It's a striving or it's a chasing after the wind. Good luck chasing the wind. Good luck trying to capture the wind. It's useless, it's worthless, it's meaningless. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, he said, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And that's true. God gave him, made him the wisest of all. Verse 17, and then I've also applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and silliness, right? And ignorance. He's like, I've gone after it all. Wisdom and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, or in much wisdom is much frustration and grief. The more you know and the knowledge you have, the more you see the pain and the hurt in this world. And he closes by saying, and he who increases in knowledge also increases in sorrow. Can you guys think about that line, that last line? That he or she who increases in knowledge 
also increases in sorrow, that the more you know, also the more pain and hurt that you see in life. You might think, I wish I knew everything about everyone. Really? When you find out other people's struggles, you find out their pain, you find out their hurts, your sorrow just increases. Maybe there's some people that you trust and you look up to, but then all of a sudden your knowledge grows and you learn things about them, things that are not good. You learn that they've been lying to their family, they've been cheating on their spouse, they've been hurting others or stealing things. And now you have that knowledge, and that knowledge is a weight that you have to carry now. But the answer is not just to be ignorant. The answer is that we learn how to live even when we see the bad side, the tough side of people and life. And so junior hires, uh, middle schoolers, I want to tell you the meaning of your life and the meaning of my life is not going to be found in worldly pursuits. You're going to find your purpose and meaning in God and God alone. As you search God and you seek him out in his word, we find meaning and purpose and joy and significance in God alone. For God is the author of your life. You know, he's the one that designed you and created you. So if you're going to look for meaning and purpose of your life, you should look to the author of your life, the one who designed you and seek him out. He is the reason for all things, for we move and we live and we have our being in God alone. So let us not look outside of God to find significance and purpose. Let me share, I, I told you this earlier, that your life, and you need to hear this because around your age is when sometimes we get into dark moments in our life of anxiety and despair, and we begin to wonder if we have any significance at all. And that is a lie that is very dangerous and very dark. But God's word tells a story that, that you are created by God on purpose and for purpose. I'm going to read to you out of Ephesians 2.10. I think uh, Dalton might be able to put that up for me. Ephesians 2.10 Paul uh, says this, For we are his, we are God's workmanship or God's handiwork. You are God's workmanship, his handiwork. And you're different than the person sitting next to you. And that's on purpose. He didn't make a clone. He made each one of us individually. And we are his workmanship. And look what the Bible says. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is the purpose. That God didn't just create you just to hang out and do whatever you want. He has good work. Good purposes in mind which God prepared beforehand. He's already known from the foundations of the earth what your purposes are to be. So that we should walk in them them means the good works. And, and walk, it, it, the Bible uses that word that how we walk, it's about how we live. We should live bent in searching out the good purposes that God has designed each one of us for. That gives me hope. Rather than me having to come up or you having to come up with a good idea for your life, you don't have to come up with a good idea for your life. God already has. And now you search him out over and over, and God begins to reveal and show you things and teach you things. So if we're going to search for the meaning in life, we'll find it as we learn who God is, what he's done for us, and who we are in the eyes of God. Now, I'm going to cheat right now, 
and I'm going to take us to the, the, one of the last verses in Ecclesiastes. You ever do that when you're like reading a book and you want to know how it ends and you just skip to the end? I know. Boo. Yeah, right. Or a movie and you're like, I need to know. And so you, you skip to the end. Well, that's what we're going to do right now. No, it's okay. It's all right. It's in the rules because this is your, our memory verse of the week. And I, I challenge each one of you to commit this verse to memory. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. This is the conclusion where he's going to get to. The end of the matter. Can you guys say that? Repeat that for me. Say the end of the matter. All has been heard. Say that. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Can you say that? And when we say this is the whole duty of man, we mean mankind. You understand that, right? That, that means men, women. This is our whole duty, to fear God and to keep his commandments. And this is how I'm just going to do in my last part of my message, and I'll wrap it up. This is a confusing command, to fear God. In, in the noun sense, it's called the fear of the Lord. And over 300 times, the word fear is used in the Old and New Testaments, and it's usually in connection to God, and it's a good thing to fear the Lord, to fear God. What does it mean to fear the Lord? So think with me as best as I can to try to picture why fearing God, why being a God-fearing woman or being a God-fearing man is actually a good thing. Uh, here's my best attempt. Um, a few years ago, we took a vacation to Yellowstone National Park. Anybody? Yellowstone. And they have livestock there. And one morning, I got up, left my family in the tent trailer. I was, doing, I was on an early morning bike ride, and I came face-to-face with one of these. A huge... Yeah, no, these, these, these things are huge. Can you guys help me, though? What do you call this? A bison or a, or a buffalo. And I don't know the difference, and I've looked it up. I think just people call this beast two different names. A bison and a buffalo. And these things are ginormous. Look it up. True word. Ginormous. And I come across, and I'm about 10 yards, which is more closer than I want to be, with this huge beast. You guys look at me. I'm a skinny man. I'm not going to take this thing down. And he's, sitting, and he's standing there in my path that I need to get by. In fact, there was very little room because in front of him was uh, this cliff off to like this river. And then a little bit behind him was a, a, a hill. And I couldn't really fit behind him and I could barely fit in front of him. And I didn't know what to do, but for a moment I just paused. And it was just me and this bison right here. And, and let me tell you what was going through my mind and emotions. You can imagine if you are face to face with this huge beast and he's just looking at you. Here's a couple of things. Let me try to tell you what was going on in my mind and my body at that time. First thing, there was awe. You know, awe, A-W-E. I was just in awe of, of this, this amazing animal and how huge he was. My heart was pounding. Can you get it? Do you feel that? You've ever been face-to-face -face with a huge animal? In fact, if I could sum up my, my awe in one word, it would have been, whoa. Like, wow, whoa. 
But here's what was also going through me. There was fear and there was trembling. I, I was scared in that moment too. Because this bison was big. And this bison is stronger than me. And could tear me apart. I sized him up. I looked at my size versus his size. And he's bigger. And in that moment, I had trembling because I also remember in Yellowstone, there's all these signs like this. Do not approach Buffalo and this poor dude, right? And that's going through my mind. And now we have people that, no kidding, will see these buffalo or bison and they'll take selfies. They try to take selfies. And it's moments before they just get torn apart. So that's why I'm trembling a little bit or a lot. I'm in awe, but I'm also, my knees are shaking. Here's another feeling going through me. There's curiosity and excitement and appreciation for its beauty. I see the beauty of this animal. It was amazing, and I didn't want to look away, and I didn't want to leave. It was better than any picture on a book or on a screen. And the next thing that was in my mind and my heart was respect for this beast, respect and even reverence. Do you know that word reverence? Meaning I'm not going to treat him lightly, you know. Um, in fact, I'm not going to take my eyes off of him. I'm not just going to waltz up to him, you know, trying to take a picture. I need to keep my eyes on this thing, right? Because it demands that respect. It demands reverence. He was too big to ignore, and he was too big for me just to turn my back on him. I had to take his existence into consideration. I would be a fool to ignore this beast in front of me. And so I contemplated my every move in light of his presence. Was the bison evil? No. No. I wasn't scared and trembling because he was evil, because he's over there smoking a cigarette and is a tattoo. <laughs> You know, like, this guy's bad. He's got a little, like, like switchblade. No, it's not because, he, you know, he was evil. Did the bison want to tear me apart? I don't know. I didn't know for sure. Right? I don't think he wanted to fight me or engage with me. But he had the power to, didn't he? He had the power to, and I had to respect that power. And again, you guys, these illustrations, they, they always fall short. But in this way, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, this encounter kind of maybe helps us see a proper response to God. Because God is majestic. God is bigger than you. God is eternal, we learn. That he's never had a beginning and he'll never have an end. Every one of us has a beginning. And I can tell you because you probably have, what do you call this, a belly button or a navel? That shows you that you came from someone. You came from somewhere. You had a beginning, and so did I. God is eternal, and that should make us go, whoa. God is all-knowing. He knows everything there is to be known, including the secret thoughts of your own heart, and he loves you anyway. God is all-powerful. He can do all that he wills. We also know that God is holy, meaning he is pure. There is no sin in him, no darkness whatsoever, which then makes me tremble because I know in my life there is sin. I have sinned against God time and time again, and God hates sin. 
And he's right to hate sin. That is justified anger toward my sin. And that makes me nervous thinking that I'm a sinful man in his presence. But yet God has also revealed himself as loving and merciful and generous and gracious. Which makes me actually want to draw near him even though he is bigger and more powerful. And so God is not someone that you can disregard or ignore or tread lightly around. He's not just your buddy. He is the God of the universe. And we must take his presence into consideration. And we can't dismiss God, and we must take his word into consideration. Because for someone who fears the Lord, it means they respect God as he ought to be respected. Someone who fears the Lord takes his word into consideration in every decision you make, that we don't just dismiss God's word. No, we will listen to it. We will do our best by the strength of his Holy Spirit to obey his word. And so most of us, when you hear the fear of the Lord, we reckon it negatively because we think, oh, wait, you mean we're supposed to be scared of God? We're supposed to be afraid of him? If I'm scared of God, then it means I'm going to hide from him and keep my distance. This is not a horror movie kind of fear. It's not a please don't strike me dead kind of a fear. God is not a bully that's, that's picking his fist up and, and wanting you to flinch. We used to play this stupid game when I was like your age. You know, we come up and try to like, like think we're going to punch someone. And if you flinched, is it still a thing? Oh my goodness. When will we ever learn? Uh, you know, and if you flinch, they'd hit you twice. Two for flinching. God is not saying, hey, you should fear me because I could beat you up. Fear me, fear me. He's, he's not doing that. That's not the type of fear. But it is a holy respect and reverence for who God is and his power. And so if I could define it, the fear of the Lord is a deep respect for who God is, what he has done, what he is capable of, and what he has said. It is to be in awe of God's majesty. So when Solomon says at the conclusion that where he finds meaning and significance is to fear God and keep his commandments, Solomon is saying respect God as he ought to be respected. Pay attention to him. Listen to his word. Don't ignore it. Bless you. I'll say it to you. The fear of the Lord also has a moral component. When I say moral, it means doing you know, right or doing good versus doing evil, that those who fear the Lord are bent towards doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord. Those who fear the Lord, they hate evil. But those of us who are engaged in sin and, and, and unrepentant sin, we just keep doing it, we hurt others, we steal things, we lie and we cheat, there is no fear of the Lord in that person. They don't regard what God says to be good and right and true. Instead, those who don't fear the Lord, we do what is right in our own eyes rather than what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And that will always lead downward in our life. So to fear the Lord, it is humble, worshipful submission to God. So what does your life look like? Would anyone ever accuse you of having the fear of the Lord? Or you take God's word into consideration? Or your heart is to obey God? Because to fear God is to obey his commandments. 
And we'll talk about that, that God's commandments, they actually lead to life and significance and joy and satisfaction. When my child was 11 years old, I asked my child, my daughter, I said, what does it mean to you to fear the Lord? And she said this, to fear God means that he is not someone you can just push around. To fear God means he's not someone you can just push around. One uh, last quote, maybe Dalton, we can go to that, that quote. A guy named A.W. Tozer, uh, pastor for many years in Chicago, he wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, which I've appreciated. He said this, the greatness of God rouses fear within us. When we talk about the greatness of God, we mean his majesty, his transcendence, his e- that he is eternal, he is all-knowing. The greatness of God rouses fear within us, but God's goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him. That God is transcendent and, and all, he's almighty, and yet God is loving and just, and he wants to have relationship with you. So his goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him. And Tozer says this line, I love it, to fear and not be afraid, that's the paradox of faith. Paradox are like two statements or two things that seem to be opposite, but they're actually true together. So to fear the Lord means to fear him but not be afraid of him. Because God has declared his mercy and his grace that he would provide that our sins could be forgiven. And so we fear the Lord but we don't cower from him in fear. Because Jesus Christ has provided the way for us to be in relationship with him. Okay, all, uh, before I close in prayer, did you guys ever read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah, okay, 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 okay. You're in a play. She's in a play. And so is she. And so are you. Wow. Okay, I'm not in that play. Can I just read to you one last excerpt? C.S. Lewis wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, trying to explain to his goddaughter what what God and what, what Christianity is all about. And, and in this book, he portrays God. If you haven't read it or seen the movies, he portrays God as a lion named What's the name? Aslan. Okay. And so there's this story. Just go with me if you haven't read the book. The animals talk, okay? Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they talk. Okay, thank you. Right here. Autographs later. Autographs with Mrs. Beaver. Um, Here's an excerpt. Mr. Beaver tells the girls that Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought Aslan was a man. Is Aslan, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver speaks up. She says, oh, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Well, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about Aslan being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Who said anything about God being safe, but he's good? He's the king. Let's pray. Father, the mere fact that every one of us, we can talk to you in prayer right now, and you promised that you would listen. God, that's a miracle right there. 
Father, would you teach us the appropriate fear of the Lord that these young men and women, this, this would be a room filled with God-fearing men, God-fearing women, people who, who worshipfully submit to you, who listen and attend to your word and seek to walk in your ways. God, I pray that we would find our meaning and our significance, our purpose in you. And I pray that you would give direction to our young people this weekend. Even a glimpse, even a, a, a bit of attention toward a, a certain path in life that you were leading them on, that you designed them for. That we would find a bit of clarity this weekend to walk in. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, you guys.